You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, Dina did such a wonderful job reading our passage that we're going to look at this morning as we continue on in our parable series. And our parables, once again, they are these, these, these stories that God's telling us, that Jesus is telling us to give us a glimpse in some ways of the upside down world that he came to bring about, that the kingdom of God looks very different than, uh, than America or France or any other part of the world. Uh, it's a very different other world. And you and I, because we were born into this world, we need stories, we need metaphors, we need examples to show us what the kingdom of God looks like. And so Jesus tells us these stories to reorient us, to remind us, to show us, to give us, give us glimpses of what it looks like to be followers of Jesus that follow him into his kingdom. And so that scene is just altogether fascinating, isn't it? Matthew 18 is locked with Jesus teaching on all this heavy stuff about how to handle conflict and how to wade in to all sorts of forgiveness issues and even what to do if someone sins against you or you have division in the church. And you could just imagine Peter. Who loves Peter? Any other Peter fans in here? I love Peter. Uh, just, he's amazing. He's the guy, first one to get out of the boat, first one to cut someone's ear off. You know, he's just going to overreact. He's just going for it. Uh, I have some of that in me too. I just want to act. There's this bias toward action. And you can imagine Peter, as he's hearing Jesus give his teaching, his explanation on forgiveness and relationships and conflict, and, and, all, and, and, and none of us have any of those problems, right? We can't relate with any of that. But Peter totally could. So Peter's listening in, and you can imagine he's doing what a lot of us do. He's, he's transferring it to himself. He's going, yeah, okay, that, that makes sense, okay. And he's probably got a personal situation or scenario that he's wrestling through. So as Jesus is wrapping up and finishing his teaching, and we're going to start looking even in verse 21, Jesus comes and, or sorry, Peter comes to Jesus, and he's, he's just trying to get some more clarity. He wants to get some clarification as he's hearing Jesus talk about forgiveness. And he comes to him and he says, well, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but how many times do I actually have to forgive? Um, and I think Peter thinks because this is God, he's going to go with a really big number. He's like, I'm going I'm to round up. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go two times or three times. He goes with, with seven. And he probably thinks, man, this is, this, is a big, this is a big gesture on my part. I'm willing to forgive someone up to seven times. And what does Jesus do? Jesus actually, in some ways, almost makes Peter feel a little defeated. He responds by saying, seven, no, no, you're just getting started. How about seven times? Seven. How about 77? How about, in some ways, what he's saying is, how about you just continue to keep forgiving? How about you continue to forgive even when you feel like you can't forgive anymore? You know, isn't this wild? Sometimes people think like, how could you really believe that Jesus is God? Well, who else would say stuff like this? Who else would have the audacity to look at people that have experienced real sufferings, have been sinned against, have been wronged in real ways, and say to them, you should forgive always. You should continue to forgive. But I think Peter is a lot like you and me, that he, he struggles with really having this confusion about the nature of what forgiveness really is. See, in our world, we define forgiveness very different than how Jesus does. And so Peter has this confusion over what forgiveness is, and if we're honest, we do too. His assumption, his understanding, his belief about forgiveness is that forgiveness is for the person that offended you. That forgiveness is for the person who wronged you. It's the person who did something bad to you. That's the assumption. And basically, the, the idea is, if we're to set up the relationship, it's, it's a debt-debtor relationship. Someone has sinned against me, someone has wronged me, and now they're in my debt. 
and I have every right to collect. And I'm gonna continue to keep tabs. I'm gonna keep an account of how much I need to collect, of how much they are in debt to me. Basically, it is my heart. It's a posture of my heart and your heart saying, they owe me. They owe me. They took something from me. I've been wronged. And so we think forgiveness is for them. We, we assume that forgiveness is for the benefit of the other person, but it's not. Forgiveness is actually for you and me. Forgiveness is a gift for you and me. But when we're hurt, we take this debt, and what do we do? We begin to keep ledgers. We begin to keep accounts. Maybe you're even walking with some of those today. Maybe you're thinking about something inside of your relationship with, with maybe even your boss of like, man, he took credit for something that I did, or I didn't get the promotion that I should have. Or maybe you're thinking about something in your marriage, how you feel like you're entitled to more respect or attention or love or kindness or whatever it might be. Or maybe you feel like you were wrong and someone betrayed you. Or like someone actually physically harmed you and hurt you along the way. And that's real. We live in a real world. And Jesus is not blind to this real world that you and I live in. And someone comes along and they emotionally slash you and they cut you down. And it hurts. And you find yourself in a place of they owe me. And so what do we do? We hold on to this debt. And we pile it up. We store it in our hearts. We store it in our souls. And we keep accounts. And we want them to pay us back. We want them to pay up. And here's the thing about that heart posture, and my heart posture goes there too, is we feel justified in doing so. We feel justified. So when we think about the situation, when we think about the person, when we think about how we've been wrong, about how someone took something from us or didn't give us what we deserve, we even get angry. Our anger is such a great diagnostic that our souls are in an unforgiving posture. And so what do we do? We, we continue to wait and we build our case and that person over time gets morphed and deformed into an image bearer, into a monster. And before you know it, you can't even think of any redeeming quality that they could still have. We build our case. And here's where we get really weird, and maybe it's just me, I'm just gonna do confession time. You start doing like imaginary conversations in your head. You know, you start like setting it up of like, man, if I, if I just got the chance, I, I've got this zinger, I could really correct them, I've got my one-liner, I know exactly what I want to say to them. And then if we're really wicked, in our imaginary conversations, there's a whole group of people around, so they get to watch and cheer us on and be like, yeah, you're right, they totally deserve it. And, or, or you don't do that, maybe you're, maybe you're more holy than that, or you're more sophisticated. And instead what you do is you push it way deep down. You just stuff it way on down. You take that anger and you know that because you're a Christian or you go to church, you're not supposed to feel that way or you're not supposed to be upset. So what do you do? You just stuff it for a long period of time. And I'll just say, uh, doing pastoral ministry for a number of years now, what I've seen is people who stuff anger, stuff bitterness, stuff unforgiveness over a long period of time, it leads to depression. It leaks out in all sorts of other ways. But yet we feel like we shouldn't feel that way. And when someone comes around to us and has the audacity to say something like, you ought to forgive, we think, no way. No way should I forgive them. I'm the victim. I'm the one that was wrong here. I'm the one that was hurt. It's their fault, not mine. I'm not doing them any favors whatsoever. Why should they get rewarded? This is the worldly way of thinking about forgiveness. We're not going to have someone be brought back into relationship until they pay us back. And we live with that kind of hard posture, and that's Peter in some ways. And Jesus wants to completely reorient what's going on by telling him this parable. 
So we're going to look at three things this morning. We'll spend a little, most of our time on number two, so don't get too uh, worried if we bog down there for a second. We're going to look at why we should forgive, what happens if we don't forgive, and how to forgive. So look at the parable with me again, starting in verse 23. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. What he's saying is, once again, if you want to know what, what my world's like, if you want to know what my rule and reign is like, then, then get a load of this. I'm, I'm going to give you a story telling you what it looks like to live in God's kingdom, to be God's people. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So I don't know if you you caught this, but this guy is in an incredible bind. This guy is facing an insurmountable debt. Um, I I did the calculation for you and 10,000 talents, here's what it is. A lot. Um, it's, It's Greek for a lot. Um, actually, what it is, is one talent signified up to 90 pounds of gold. And so if you calculate that by how much gold is, it's about $1,800 an ounce right now. We're talking over 100,000 years of wages. I don't even know how this guy got himself in such debt, but this is the predicament he finds himself in. So what does this king do? This king just goes, you know what? I, I, I know when to cut my losses. Just sell them. Just sell them. Just get rid of them. His wife, his family, just get rid of them. Just sell them. Let's be done with it. He has no hope. This guy is hopeless. His debt is insurmountable, but he doesn't even realize that. He's he's deluded, just like you and I are sometimes when we find ourselves in a debt-debtor situation. We think we can work our way out of it. How many of us are still trying to work our way into God's favor? That's what he tries to do here. Verse 26, so the servant fell fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. This guy's delusional. He's got no shot of working himself out of the debt that he finds himself in. But yet, for whatever reason, the king, his heart softens. His disposition, when he looks at this guy with an insurmountable debt and probably sees his his wife and kids right there in front of him, is is, is altogether otherworldly. It's something that really is just altogether divine. Verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Other translation says, to cancel the debt. Imagine what kind of elation and celebration that servant should have felt. What kind of release, if you and I, we had the biggest debt ever imagined, we had no hopes in our entire life of ever paying paying it back, and really our fate was to be cast out into bondage and to be sold into slavery, and then our debt is forgiven. Imagine how that should shape and affect and transform every other interaction you have the rest of your life about how you would see the world, about how you would see others. Sadly, that's not exactly what this servant takes away from that moment, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, so he gets released, he's given freedom from his debt, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him about 100 denarii. This is basically about 100 days wages, so maybe three months salary, Uh, not, uh, you know, Not nothing, not chump change, it's something, but it's definitely something you could pay back. And he seizes him and he begins to choke him. Look how aggressive and violent he is. He chokes him and he says, pay me what you owe. 
Do you see that once again? Here's the debt-debtor relationship, the debt-debtor nature of forgiveness and someone who needs to be forgiven. It is a hard posture. It is a heart leaning. It is a mindset of saying, you owe me. And until I get what I am owed, I'm not going to release you. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And he actually had a pretty decent shot. And it's really weird too. I always, when I read this parable, I'm like, why would you throw him in prison if you want him to pay off? I mean, that's a bad place to maybe work off debt. It says he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they reported this back to the master, all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so what does he do? Verse 34, and in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which as we already talked about, he has no shot of ever being able to do. So step out once again. Imagine Peter sitting there and he's going, man, this story did not go at all the way I thought it was going to go. Sorry I even asked. But that's you and I in some ways. We're probably backing out of the lens and Jesus ratches it, this story up and he even goes further in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. And he says this, if you don't forgive your brother, if you don't forgive your sister, if you don't forgive others, then you have not been forgiven. This is deadly serious stuff to Jesus. Jesus is altogether focused on you and I having a posture and a heart that is willing to forgive even when it seems altogether impossible for you and me. So much so in verse 35, this is what Jesus finishes. And this is his words, not mine. I wouldn't have the audacity to say this to you guys. It says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. See, Jesus demands that you and I, if, if we really do soak in the why of forgiveness, here's, here's the why of forgiveness. If you and I really do realize just how much we've been forgiven, it should radically transform us. Forgiven people forgive. Just as birds fly, just as waves wave, I, I, I guess that's what they do. Just as leopards and cheetahs run, Christians are to be people who forgive. And when you and I look at a debt that's in front of us, what, what really is the driving focus? What's the driving impetus? What's the power that allows you and I to forgive? Well, it's right there in verse 27. Verse 27, remember, here's this king, and he's, he's, he's about to forgive an insurmountable debt. He's about to forgive a debt of thousands and thousands of pounds of gold. In verse 27, it says he cancels the debt. And just imagine, I don't care how rich you are, to cancel a debt of that size comes at a great cost. And Jesus is already foreshadowing his crucifixion and his sacrifice. And can you think of anything that was ever a greater cross, a cost than the blood of Jesus? That Jesus' blood was shed for you, that God the Father, when he looked on you, when he looked on the world, when he looked on you and me, he said, I'm willing to pay the greatest cost in the world so that they can experience forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel, that you and I get forgiveness. And when we don't forgive, friends, it is gospel amnesia. It's gospel amnesia. It's us forgetting how much we've been forgiven. The wicked servant in this story is meant to remind us how quickly we forget the cross of Jesus Christ. 
how quickly, I mean, I'm just as prone as you. I'm probably going to walk out of this room even in the next couple weeks, and I will be right back in that spot, so quick to forget how much God has forgiven me. Verse 27 is this, this invitation to return and meditate and be reminded that God the Father, when he looked on you, when he looked on me, he gladly paid a cost that you and I could never pay. So that when you and I, we, we encounter, when we meditate, when we consider, when we live in light of how much we've been forgiven, forgiveness begins to flow through us. It's not like that white knuckle forgiveness, grit your teeth like you did when you were a kid because your mom's making you forgive your brother or sister. It's not that. It's a joy, big-hearted forgiveness. It's like, do you know how much I've been forgiven? Surely I can forgive you. Surely I can forgive you. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he has this wonderful quote, and he says this. It means that the proof that you and I have forgiven is that we forgive others. The man who knows he has been forgiven through the shed blood of Christ is a man who must forgive others. If we really know Christ as our Savior, our hearts are broken and cannot be hard, and we cannot refuse forgiveness. If you refuse forgiveness to anybody, I suggest you have never been forgiven. I think he's on solid footing there too. Once again, that's what Matthew 6, Jesus is saying. Whenever I see myself before God and realize something of what Jesus has done for me, I'm ready to forgive anybody of anything. I cannot withhold it. I do not even want to withhold it. And C.S. Lewis, he put it this way, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because we have had the inexcusable forgiven in us. So what about you? Is, is, is there a heart posture? Is there a moment for you now to pause and reflect and meditate on the cross of Jesus, that you're king, that you're God, that, that Jesus who loves you, loves you, not just the idea of you, not just humanity as a blanket, but loves you and knows you by name, was willing to pay an insurmountable cost so that you would have new life. He did not operate in a debt-debtor relationship in the sense that he was going to wait for you to pay him back before you got brought back. Because guess what, friends? Not one of us could ever pay God back. Amen. Not one of us stood any chance of paying back a holy God for all the ways that we've rebelled against him. Through our sins of omission and our sins of commission, things that we should not have done and things that we did do, ways that we rebelled against him, ways that we've defiled his creation, ways that we have violated other image bearers, and yet our God pays for all of that. And when we realize that, when we consider that, that transforms us in an altogether otherworldly way. See, here's the truth. All issues of forgiveness are primarily rooted in what you truly believe about the cross of Christ. If the cross of Christ is small for you, if it is small in your heart, then forgiveness will always remain hard. But if the cross of Christ is big, then forgiveness will become easy. For the greatest scandal, the only moment in human history when there really was an absolutely pure cry of this is unfair, they're getting away with it, was that moment in human history when all of us got away from our sin. And imagine that. Imagine you and I getting away and Jesus hanging on a tree for you 
and me. This is truly a scandal. And when, when, it gra- when our hearts grasp it, we are all together transformed. So friends, we should forgive because forgiven people forgive. Because it is gospel amnesia not to. And because when the cross of Christ is big, it transforms you and I and makes it possible for us to begin to forgive others. But here's what I know. It's not always easy. So what happens when we don't? And maybe a lot of us find ourselves in that place this morning. What happens when we don't? Well, verse 34 talks about that very reality. Why is Jesus so adamant about forgiving? I mean, this seems kind of standoffish of him. Why is he so aggressive that you must forgive? Is it because he's unempathetic? Is it because he doesn't understand us? No, friends, it's because he loves you. And he realizes that if you stay stuck in your unforgiveness, it will eventually destroy you. When you and I hold on to our grudges, the biggest mistake we have is not understanding that they actually have a hold of us. So you think you're holding this grudge, you think you're holding this unforgiveness, and instead it's holding you. The moment, the moment in our heart we say, I'm moving into a debt-debtor relationship, I'm not going to forgive this person, what we're saying is I'm hitting the self-destruct button on my life. I'm signing up for the bondage of bitterness. I'm signing up to enroll in the jail of unforgiveness. Verse 34 says this very thing. It says, in his anger. So the master is angry at this wicked servant. He delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. The NIV uses the word, delivered him over to be tormented. To be tormented. And friends, I can think of no better word than to describe what life looks like when you have an unforgiving heart. How tormenting that must feel. And Jesus doesn't want you to be tormented. He doesn't want you to live with a heart, with a posture of feeling in bondage to bitterness. He wants you to be free. Now, let me just say, in a room of this size, I realize that some really wicked and awful things have happened to some of you. And I'm not making light of that. In fact, I'm sure if we were to sit down and have coffee and I was to hear your story, I would weep right along with you. So I get that. So I I realize that in in a sermon like this, I can't cover every last scenario, but that's really the beauty of what a church body and a family is all for, that there are places for you to walk this out. There are places for people to talk with you, to care for you, to walk alongside you. So I just want to encourage you in that direction. But I also love you enough to just tell you what Jesus says because he's a good physician and he loves your soul and he loves your heart. And he's telling you, friend, that to stay in the bondage of bitterness, to stay in a place of unforgiveness, wrecks havoc into your life. Bitterness is the natural result and fruit when we refuse to forgive. Bitterness is a cancer when it's left unchecked. It'll ravage every single part of us. In fact, there's growing research even coming in from the psychological world and even physiological world as they're catching up with Jesus here in Matthew 18 that confirm exactly what Jesus teaches. um, Growing research is showing us that holding on to anger and resentment are causes for many of our problems, that our bodies over time, they begin to actually decay and where the consequences and effects of resentment and hatred and hostility and animosity and bitterness, and we begin to break down. This is a literal physical handing over to be tormented. How many of you feel tormented by a heart that's unwilling to forgive? 
Many of us maybe sit in spaces of chronic anger, of emotional distress, of mental disorder, of deep anguish and tormenting. And here's Jesus over, he's saying, no matter all the other things, the biggest thing, the big E on the eye chart, the thing that will change everything, the thing that releases the kink in the hose of every single bondage you feel in your life is a posture of forgiveness, is a posture of grace. That's the only hope you have. That's the only possible transformation is that you and I would step into a place of forgiveness. We, we talk about all the time around Stonegate that we want to make disciples and enjoy Jesus. And I can't help but think of for how many of us in this room today, maybe the very next step or the place for us to enjoy Jesus more is practicing forgiveness. You know, sometimes actually the really deep, hard, heart work stuff we can hide from, we can actually get very religiously busy. We can give more, we can serve more, we can do more Bible studies when really God's, what he's wanting us to do more than anything else is go forgive, to step out of the bondage of that bitterness. Maybe, friends, that's the very next step of submission and obedience for you, that you'll actually walk out what Jesus is teaching here, that when you leave this room today, that you'll go walk this out, that you will forgive, not so that person gets away with it, not because they're rewarded, but so that you get free, so that you get free. Nancy DeMoss, I love how she puts it, but she says this, when we refuse to forgive, we have stunted grace from flowing to us and from us. And this handicaps our capacities to have relationships with others and God. Pay attention to that. Maybe you feel like there's a handicap or something in your relationship with God or others that's been stunted. Maybe there's bondage of unforgiveness that you need to follow Jesus and trust him with and surrender over to him. She goes on to say, this is why Jesus wanted us to pray that we would also forgive those who have trespassed against us. This is such a big deal to Jesus that it made his prayer, you know? I mean, if you make the prayer, that must be a pretty important thing. I mean, he, he put it in the prayer. Like, this is an ongoing thing. It's not like, I just had one forgiveness thing from eight years ago. No, if you're human and you live around other humans, guess what? Over time, you guys will hurt each other. You will sin against one another. You will offend one another. Forgiveness is the constant practice, posture, and participation of everyone who claims to be a follower of Christ. As hard as it is for us to forgive at times, the alternative is much worse. A person that does not forget, does not give forgiveness will eventually end up suffering way more from the consequences of not forgiving than the wound of the original offense. You see, church, I, I love the sympathetic, loving, caring posture of so many people in our church community. There are people in this church that will put their arm around you and pray for you and hug you and weep with those who weep. And I just think that is one of the Lord's biggest kindness to us as a church family. But I think that there's something altogether profound in realizing that what you and I often need is not just relief, but we need release. We don't just need relief sometimes from our pain, but we need release from our pain. And Jesus giving that prescription, that prescription is that if that, that wound, that bitterness, that agony that hard-heartedness, that, that, that critical heart that you have towards someone else or feeling like that person's wronged you, how long do you want to live with that? God is quite clear that the human heart is a terrible receptacle 
for bitterness and unforgiveness. It's like trying to store nuclear waste in a Ziploc bag. Be a really bad idea, wouldn't it? I mean, say you came over to my house and you went in the pantry and I just have some nuclear waste in a Ziploc bag. You would look at me like, that's a really awful place to keep that. Like, you should, you should dig a hole at least. I mean, something better than the pantry. You should do something about that. And as, as absurd as that sounds, that's what you and I do when we play around with bitterness and unforgiveness and let it store up inside of our hearts. It's just as absurd, it's just as crazy, and it's just as dangerous. Some of you might know the name uh, Rudy Tomjanovich. Uh, he was the uh, coach for the Houston Rockets when they won a couple NBA championships back in the 90s. And before that, Rudy Tomjanovich was a player for the Houston Rockets during the 70s and 80s. And uh, the Houston Rock, and he was really good. He was an all-star, had a great career in front of him. He was having one of his best years ever in 1977. They were playing the Lakers on a December night, and a, a brawl broke out in the middle of the game. And Rudy Tomjanovich is at the far side of the court, and a brawl breaks out over here. And Rudy Tomjanovich comes sprinting down the court to get involved, to help break it up, whatever he was going to do. And a player for the Lakers named Kermit Washington was in the fray. And Kermit Washington just happens to see this red blur out of the corner of his eyes and instinctually balls up his fist and plants it at full speed right into the face of Rudy Tomjanovich. Those that were there that night, they talked about how you could hear the thud of Rudy's face hitting the floor from the upper decks. It was the equivalent of a 60-mile-an-hour car, 60 car crash with no seatbelt. Rudy Tomjanovich would miss the next couple seasons of playing basketball. He would have multiple facial reconstructive surgeries. And still to this day, he has trouble seeing and hearing. And he was interviewed and asked, have, have you forgiven Kermit Washington? And he said, you know, I heard a long time ago that not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and hoping someone else will die. And how many of us think that by holding that person in debt that we're really punishing them when all along we're actually punishing ourselves? That's the tormenting that Jesus is speaking about here. See, we're deluded enough to think that when we maintain this debt-debtor relationship, you know what? They don't deserve to be forgiven. How many of you have said that? They don't deserve. That's you saying, I'm going to hold on. I'm going to drink the poison, and I think it's actually hurting them. Well, the trick's on us. It's actually hurting us. How many of you say, they owe me an apology? Well, all along, you're the one that's being deformed by that. And let's just apply this corporately to us as a church for a second. I don't know about you, but 2020 has been a little wild, right? It's been a little hectic. Anyone else agree? Maybe you guys have had a great 2020. Uh, but for me, at least, it's been filled with some relational challenges. It's been filled with even some church strife. In the middle of that, I've just had to ask myself, Lord, what does it look like to do conflict? What does it look like to forgive? What does it look like to be gracious in a way that honors you? Lord, how do we do that? How do we demonstrate to the watching world around us that this may be how the world thinks about forgiveness, but not so with us? That at Stonegate Church, that as the people of God, that as Jesus followers, we're not going to think of forgiveness as letting others off the hook or we're, or, or we're not letting anyone off until they give us what we're owed, but rather we're going to look at the cross. We're going to look at the cross and we're going to say, because I've been forgiven so much, it's so easy for me to forgive them. And I'm eager to do that. I'm eager, eager to overlook those offenses. I'm eager to overlook our differences, political differences, Pandemic differences, 
communal differences, expectations not being met, all of those things across the board, is there a posture to say, I'm so quick and big hearted to be reconciled and forgive because I've been reconciled and forgiven so much. So how do we do this though? Because you and I can't. That's the hard part. I'm sure some of you can even feel that right now. This is altogether unnatural. As I said, this is not the way the world goes about things. And I would say you're absolutely right. This will take an otherworldly power in order for us to live this out. It'll take a supernatural power because this is not natural. It'll come up on the screen for you, but Paul says this, and I love his words to the church in Ephesus. And Paul says this to the church um, in Ephesus. In in Ephesians chapter 4, you can look at it. Uh, He talks about how there has got to be a posture of every single one of us being willing to let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away, along with all malice. Malice is a desire for evil. And then here's what he says. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, don't miss that. This is everything. This is how you and me, this is how we're actually empowered to live out what Jesus is teaching in this parable, is there's an indicative. An indicative and imperative is what's going on here. The indicative is that you've been forgiven so much. And and in light of that, because of that, that's true. That's absolutely true. So because you've been forgiven so much, now here's the command. Here's the imperative. Here's the thing that you ought to do. You ought to forgive others. And not in your own strength, but rather through the strength of the Holy Spirit, who's taken up residence in you as followers of Jesus. You and I are not equipped in our own flesh to practice this kind of forgiveness. Rather, we're just as caught up in the ways of the world as anyone else. But you and I, friends, we're not on our own. We don't do this of our own strength, but rather we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, who's taken up residence in you and me. We are new creations in Christ. And because of that, we can forgive in ways that Jesus forgave. We can look at the bigness of the cross. We can rely on the power of the Holy Spirit who's taken up residence in us. We can rely that our hearts have been renewed and restored and made new. And that now empowers us to forgive others. So here's the thing. Here's the thing for you and me. Are we going to be this kind of church? Are we going to be these kind of people? Are we going to be this kind of Jesus follower? Um, I realize that this is so hard and life is so messy. And, you know, one of the things I laugh about a lot of times when people talk about the church being messy is I'm like, yeah, that's, that's exactly the point. Like everyone in here is a sinner. And when you put sinners in the same space for a long enough period of time, they're going to sin against one another. Um, it's, it's a weird image, but I, I find it kind of amusing. Um, I often think about how do you get sinners into community with one another? It's like saying how do porcupines snuggle? You know, you got all your quills, you got all of your junk, you got all your baggage, and you're trying to get close to someone else, but they've got all of their junk and all of their baggage along the way. And so you and I, we have to be dedicated to a posture of seeing the bigness of the cross first and foremost. But as a church, what we've wanted to do too is we've wanted to equip all of you and we want to equip our home groups to do this well because all of us will face challenges when it comes to how to forgive. So on the pup tables on the way out, and we also have it available on our website, is we put together what we just call our conflict field guide. And our conflict field guide is exactly that. It's meant to be a guide for those moments when you run into being offended, when someone sins against you, when you are struggling with unforgiveness. 
And friends, if, if there's one thing I could encourage you, and especially in light of 2020, this would be such an incredible resource to not just grab on your way out and maybe just, you know, keep in your car seat for a couple days, but put this in your Bible. I, I promise you, in the next week, maybe in the next hour, you will have an opportunity to apply this. And it's designed in a way that you can open it up and you can begin to go through a very thought-filled process of what are the steps for me to live out this attitude of forgiveness? What are the steps for me to follow Jesus and what it looks like to be a forgiving person because I've been forgiven so much? And so it starts with a lot of heart work and what we really need to say and, and Jesus' teachings. Remember his teachings where he says, talking about getting the log out of your own eye before you go and look at the speck in someone else's. So this, this is a wonderful tool for all of us. And as those moments come, what would it look like if we were a church that just had a, a guide, a way, a practice for how we were going to pra practice conflict? Okay, so let me close with this. Forgiveness, and maybe some of you are walking in, you're listening to me, and everything inside you is going like, yeah, Ryan, if you just heard my story, if you just knew what happened to me. Here's what I'd say. Forgiveness is, is not quick. It's not easy. I'm not saying here today that forgiveness means enabling sin. I'm not even saying today that you approve of other person's sin. I'm not even saying today that you let someone mistreat you. That's not what forgiveness is. I'm not saying that the pain immediately goes away. In fact, for a lot of us, the, the spiritual rhythm and discipline will have to be repeatedly and ongoingly laying that pain down at the cross over and over and over again. And friend, what I can promise you is that over time, that what feels so painful and unimaginably anguishing and difficult today, the Lord is gracious. And over time, you'll notice that that begins to fade. That as you re refuse to pick up that debt, as you refuse to go out and try to hold that person to a debt over and over and over again, you'll notice the Lord begin to work in your heart and in your life as he softens you. So here's what I want you to do. Think of that. Think of whatever that, that forgiveness thing is. Every single one of us in this room has something. What is that forgiveness thing that you're struggling with right now? Identify it. Maybe for some of you, it's you feel like someone took something from you. Maybe someone's not loving you the way they should. Maybe there's strife with your children, kids, maybe students. Maybe there's something you've got going on with a friend or with your parents. Maybe there's something you feel like you're owed, a position. Maybe someone stole from you and you're like, I want it back and I'm not gonna let it go until I get it back. Whatever it is, get, get very specific. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to cancel the debt. I want you to make that decision. And it's not a feeling, it's, it's a decision. It's a decision that Jesus empowers because of his grace for you purchased on the cross. And it's not just a one-time decision, but it has to start at least at one time. And then you're gonna have to make that decision again and again and again. I am not making light of sin. I'm not making a light of things that have been done to you in this room. In fact, I think these things are so serious that John Piper's words here are so true. He says, Christianity does not make light of sin. On the contrary, it takes the sins against us so seriously that to make them right, God gave his son to suffer more than we could ever make anyone suffer for what they have done to us. So church, let's forgive.
Let's forgive, because forgiven people forgive. So where you are, would you, would you close your eyes? I want to pray. I want to do a little bit of a spiritual exercise with you this morning as we close out. I want you to clench your fists. I want you to clench your fists, put them in your lap. And as your fists are clenched and you're thinking about that, that person, that situation, that childhood, that marriage, that relationship, where you are angry, where you are resentful, where you are bitter, where you are holding on to a grudge, where you feel in bondage to bitterness, where you feel like you need to get what you're owed. Would you just hold, hold that for a second and allow me to pray this over you. And as I pray, just ask the Spirit to loosen your hands. King Jesus, we want to be followers that obey your teaching here. And we realize that this is otherworldly. This is supernatural. So we need you. We need you to empower us but here's what we know, King Jesus. We know that you're good. And even when what you're saying is good feels hard, we know that it's for our good. And you don't want any of us to remain sick and wounded by what has happened to us. And we, God, we know that, that you can heal all wounds. There's no wound. There's nothing that's been done against us that you can't heal. And not only can you heal wounds, but you also identify with wounds. You're not a God who's far off, but you're a God that's so near. You came to walk amongst us. That's what we're celebrating even in this Advent series, that you are a God who draws near to the brokenhearted, and you know what it's like to be betrayed. You know what it's like to be lied against. You know what it's like to have people turn their backs on you. And so while it may be impossible for so many of us with clenched fists to think that anyone could understand our pain or sorrow, we know that you can, Jesus. We know, King Jesus, that you can, and you've made a way for us to be set free from the bondage of unforgiveness. So Lord, would you take our hands by your supernatural grace and would you open them up? And as our fists become unclenched and we open our hands, may, Lord, we feel a sense of conviction that today's the day. Today is the day that if need be, we'll make that phone call. We'll have that conversation. Whatever that looks like, Lord, we'll obey you. We'll follow you because we know that the cross is big. We know that you've got us. And we know this is for our good. Amen.